Um, just a heads up before we dive into God's Word this morning. Next week, we are going to begin our study through the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in that book all the way through winter or spring. It's going to be entitled, Order in the House. How are we to conduct ourselves as the household of faith? What does it mean to be the people of God on mission? How does it mean, what does it mean to be the people of God in community together? And that's going to start next week, 1 Timothy. But today, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Thanks to Pastors Rob and Scott holding down the fort, preaching through restoration, the theme of restoration. And they talked about what it means to pursue restoration in our personal lives, relationships. What does it mean to, to pursue um, re- restoration in our city? But this morning, I want to just put a little exclamation point on this series and bring this to a close and talk about what it means to pursue restoration as refugees. You know, coming out of 2020, um, let's be honest, um, a lot of us, a lot of Christians, many in the church have this sort of growing sense of displacement, of just not being able to find our way. We look around, if we're honest, and say things are not as they should be, right? The world is broken. People are broken. Countries are broken. Political parties are broken. The culture is broken. Church is broken. We're broken. And as we've been walking through these pastoral devotionals that I do every weekday morning, we've been going through the book of Exodus, sort of a follow-up to our series in Genesis. And I'm just struck in this study by the spiritual similarities, not, not political similarities, the spiritual similarities between Israel 3,500 years ago and then the position we as believers find ourselves in today. So that's where we're going. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus 1. If you don't have it, we're going to flash the text on the screen behind you. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's a short chapter, and then we're going to dive in. Hear the, word, hear the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then the Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, I just, I believe I pray this on behalf of our church family. We just want to do what you have called us to do. We just want to be obedient. We want to be faithful. Lord, we confess as your people Many times, oftentimes, we don't know exactly what that is. Lord, these are confusing times. They are complex times. We're, although our hearts are positioned, we want them to be positioned to you in obedience. Lord, we know so often they are led astray and we don't see as clearly as we need to see. And so we're asking for your help. I'm asking for your help this morning that you would bring from your word living life. You would bring from your word sight. You would bring from your word direction. Lord, wherever you go, wherever you call us to do, we will do it as your people. Just show us the way. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You'll recall from the end of Genesis There was this tiny, tiny band of brothers, and Moses reminds us that it was 70 people in this giant, most powerful nation in all the world. They came to Egypt. Joseph, of course, was their hero. He was the national hero of Egypt. He was the spiritual hero of Israel because he had God saved God's people from famine. Well, now fast forward, it is 400 years later. And during this season, the people of Israel, Four Oaks, have experienced immense blessing, incredible favor. We we learn later that they are two million strong by this point. They are living in the prime of land in Goshen there in Egypt. Their, Their patron father, Joseph, is this national hero, and because of their relationship with the with the throne, with the crown, they enjoyed great protection, incredible blessing. They were flourishing because of their lineage in history. But look at verse 8. There's this ominous note that Moses directs us to when he tells us that there arose a king who did not know Joseph. Now, this is not like the whole men in black thing where they shine that little light in your eyes and you get instant amnesia and you forget that your grandmother is really a cockroach. Remember that whole deal? Okay, that, that's, not, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Most likely this is a signaling a dynastic transition, right? And, and as, the new, as the new era of Pharaoh's 
entered in, expelled the others, they obviously looked very skeptically at all the existing alliances. And so they, they looked at the Is- Israelites here. They, these are two million strong. They are people in a strange land. This is clearly a clear and present danger. And, and they come up, they concoct a scene. We have to keep them from multiplying and growing lest they turn on us, lest they join our enemies. And there's this twofold program of oppression kind of hinged on these two things. Number one, there was enslavement. See, they were forced to work. They were not, now this was not domestic servitude like Joseph experienced in the house of Potiphar, you know, sort, sort of domestic servitude. This was chattel slavery. This was American South picking in the cotton fields. This was mortar and brick and building pyramids and being oppressed and being tr- uh, treated horribly. We learn later that there is, there is oppression, there is physical oppression. They are crying out to God. So the first part of this program was enslavement. The second part was just full-on extermination. This is, this is Holocaust-like behavior. See, we, we, are, we see here that the Pharaoh instructs all those in charge to kill the, the, the male children born um, to the Israelites. Now, one of the things that you, we need to understand about this is that this all happened in a relatively short period of time. So, so if you ever read history books about the rise of fascism in, in Nazi Germany and how quick it happened over the course of just months and a couple of years to go from favored nation status to being shipped off to concentration camps, you get a sense here, right, of what the children of Israel were experiencing. This was spiritual whiplash. They went from favored nation to nation na grata, just almost overnight. Now, guys, when I think about our current context, and this is not meant to be a a political statement about uh, the nature of American history. I think what I'm stating is just a simple fact. But for the last 400 years to when people from Europe began settling here in the New World, the church, the people of God, have had a ton of favor, a ton of blessing. Now, while certainly not everyone has been a professing Christian by any stretch, because we know that's not the case, you could still trust that most everyone was singing out of the same hymnal, so to speak. You could trust that everybody on the team was, was calling plays from the same playbook. In other words, while everyone may not have been a Christian, there was a sense in which everyone was operating from the same moral, ethical, worldview framework and that this was consistent no matter where you went, whether it was church or home or school or family or workplace. Now, I say this in not an apocalyptic way or ominous sort of way, but I think it's pretty clear, right? That season is over. That season is over. And the church, the people of God increasingly find themselves in Egypt, proverbially. There's a growing sense of displacement. There's a growing sense of like, I don't, Pastor Paul, I don't know how to get my bearings here culturally. There's no place place to, to put my feet. I feel like a stranger in my own land. And to which I would say, well, you know what? That's precisely who God says we are. We are spiritual refugees This is not our home, never intended to be our home. 
And while seasons like this, and sometimes these seasons, by the way, can go on days, decades, even centuries, while they are hard in an earthly sense, we know that they are designed particularly by God to do a work of grace in his people. I mean, let's, let's be honest. What does God do during these times for his people? He prunes them. He disciplines them. He purifies them. He sanctifies them. He changes them. Guys, he gets a big old Holy Spirit mallet and crushes all of our idols. Think about this past year. How many of your idols have been crushed? How many things that you have set your hope and your security and your assurance and your identity in have just sort of either been obliterated or sort of fallen away? We know this season is part of God's grace to his people where he oftentimes reveals even who the true people of God are. Who's just sort of along for the ride and who is really placing their hope and faith and trust in Jesus. And so, so these seasons are not happenstance. They, they, they don't happen um, apart from the sovereign care of God. In fact, they have the, the care of the sovereign design of God behind them. And so what I want to point us to in this text, and I'm going to do this very quickly, are three attitudes or three attributes that I see the people of Israel embodying during their fall from favor that, that I believe God wants us to emulate, to embrace. Remember, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us these are not stories given to us just to have a little pick-me-up or to have just a nifty little moral lesson on leadership. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, these stories were given for our instruction. And I believe that is most certainly the case here. So, so three attitudes God's people are called to embody as spiritual exiles or refugees. And number one is a perspective. It's a certain perspective. And look at verse 6. It says, Joseph and all his brothers died. Now, normally we know this to be the case, that transitions in leadership, whether they're in the church or in the home or in the workplace or on the, or on the athletic field, transitions in leadership are often times very unstable times. Things don't always go very well and most often do not. Yet here we find in this text with the Israelites, there is no crisis. In fact, their faith was not shaken. In fact, they were blessed all the more. And, and one of the reasons for this, I think, is that ultimately they had not pinned their hope to any single man or any singular leader. Their hope wasn't in a particular political situation. Their hope wasn't contingent upon who was in power. Their hope was in God, and they simply trusted him to do what was right by them. It's a great lesson. Church, and, and, and if you've been around the church or any organization or business long enough, you know this to be the case. God's servants come and go. God's leaders, every one of them, are temporary. One time when I was um, 
listening to Mark Dever speak. He's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. He said, Pastor, your first day on the job, you need to be preparing your church for your successor. And it's like, thank you very much, Mark. That was super helpful, right? It was his way of reminding us, you're, you're all just in a temporary appointment here, right? No leader is eternal. No leader lasts forever. And that's, and that's a great thing to remind ourselves. See, because when we begin to pin our hopes, place our trust, become leader-centric, we will invariably, always, every time, lose our way. Because that's what leaders do. Because they're human. They're fallen. It's one of the things that we endeavor to, to, to recognize here at Four Oaks that, hey, we don't, we don't pin leadership to a singular person. We need a plurality. We need a group. We need, we, need, we need multiple spiritual fathers to help lead and guide the church. Now, this lesson that no one is indispensable, we have absolutely, many of you, many of us have seen that politically, right? What happens when you hitch your wagon to a falling star? We've seen this spiritually. Think about all the stories of late. I won't rehearse them specifically here. Where prominent, respected, evangelical leaders, maybe they've passed away or maybe they've moved out of the limelight, but you get a peek from behind the curtain and you realize, oh my gosh, there's, there's destructive sin, there's heinous sin, there was hidden lives, there was this ruin of witness, there's abusive forms of leadership. But you know what's most disheartening besides the sins themselves? The most disturbing thing to me is seeing how all the people around these leaders deep down really knew there were big problems here, right? There was was this subtle enabling. There was this subtle hiding and covering over because there was this misplaced notion, theology, we're all susceptible to it, that this person, this leader, this man, this woman is indispensable. This person is too big to fail. Their ministry is too powerful. Their, Their voice is too awesome. They're too prophetic. And we have to sort of muscle the people around this person to sort of like keep the criticism at bay. And we have to recognize that for what it is. It's idolatry. And this faulty theology, this, this theology of indispensability, you've heard me say this before, but Winston Churchill famously said, the graveyard is full of indispensable men, full of them. Four Oaks, when we treat someone as indispensable or anything or any institution as indispensable, we will sell our souls and convictions every time and our witness with it. See, Joseph died and, and don't, don't get me wrong, I, I'm sure when Joseph was alive, he was honored, he was respected. That's not what this sermon's about, though. This sermon is about where we're pinning and placing our hope. And the people of God flourished spiritually. They, they persevered because they understood who their true hero was. I want you to think about this in whatever sphere that you're in, whether it's the home or it's the marriage or with your children or your community group or at work or in your neighborhood, who is the hero of your story? Who is the hero of your testimony? And I'll just give you a hint. It's one word, and it's always the right word in church, right? Jesus. Every time. 
He will never let you down. Perspective. Secondly, we see in the lives of the people of Israel perseverance. Now, here's what's interesting. It tells us in the text that as the heat was turned up on the people of Israel, when they literally, within a span of a very short time, went from penthouse to outhouse, so to speak, I want you to note what Moses tells us they did and did not do. Let me tell you what they did not do. They did not riot. They did not protest. They did not launch a social media campaign to take back their country. They did not exchange eye for an eye. There was no revolution. Did you realize there was not even a a no refusal to work? They were slaves, but what did they do? They kept on working. They kept on laboring. They kept on being obedient. There was no, this is not my Pharaoh sort of speech, right? They demonstrated their perseverance by their obedience. Look at verse 12. This is interesting. The more they were oppressed, Moses tells us, the more they multiplied. Now, we may ask, well, what's so significant about this? What's so significant, Pastor Paul, of making babies and having families? It's very simple. It's what God told them to do. God says, I've got a, this was the the locus of God's promise and his covenant faithfulness to them. He said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to deliver you up from Egypt one day, but you don't know when. And that's so hard, isn't it, to wait? He says, here's what I want you to do. And we're all just like, "Tell, tell us, Pastor Paul, what are we to do? What are we to do while we wait? Well, the same thing the Israelites were told to do. Um, Be faithful. Go to work. Establish your homes. Pour into your families. um, Multiply. Be fruitful. And you may say, well, Pastor, that, that just sounds so ordinary, so mundane. You know, oftentimes when we are compelled to be just a little smarter than God in these kind of things. It's ultimately revealed for what it is. We just simply don't trust him to do what he says he's going to do. And so whether these Israelites were tending the cattle for the good Pharaoh, remember, that's where they started. That was a cushy job. Or whether they were enslaved making pyramids for the bad Pharaoh, they just kept doing what God told them to do to worship, to work, and to pray. Guys, a lot of us are asking that question, Pastor Paul, what are we to do in such tumultuous times as these? Surely we have to do something, right? Surely we're we're compelled to something. God's told us what we are to do. We just simply have to trust in it. Just, just dads, be, be obedient. Be a faithful dad. You're, you're not called to change the world. You're just called to pour yourself into the people around you. Moms, just be faithful with those kids. Just be faithful. Just pursue witness and gospel opportunities in your work. Folks, just, just befriend your neighbor. 
get to know your roommates, get to know those who live on your hall. Get, you, you, get, you get the point here, right? But so often, we're not content with that. And we feel like we have to leverage who we are to say something, right? To do something. Now, I made a list of the things that we love to do. And my goal in making this list was to offend everyone in here. Okay, you ready? Okay, let me just, I'm just going to go for it. If I don't offend you, I haven't done my job. So here we go. The, the world does not need your take on vaccines, pro or con. Okay? The world does not need your take on conspiracies, pro or con. The world does not need your take on why the ingoing or the outgoing president is evil incarnate. Okay? The world does not need your take on that. Right? We've got plenty of people to speak to those kinds of things. You, you get the The world does not need your take on the efficacy of masks, okay? That, that's not the most important thing that you can leverage your life for. Now, understand something. I have an opinion about all those things, by the way, okay? Every single one of them. The point is, what the world needs is the one thing it can't get from itself, and that's the gospel. It needs Jesus Christ. Guys, if we're going to be bold, Guys, if we're going to, to lay it on the line, if we're, if, we're, if, we, if we're going to persevere and not pin our hopes to a star that's fading, then, then we have to leverage our life around the only thing that gives ultimate life, and that's Jesus. And sometimes the reason we don't is because that strikes the most discordant note of all, which is why we need a different kind of courage. And this is the third thing we see in this text. Not only do we need perspective, not only do we need perseverance, but we need prowess. Now, let's go back to the text a second. When the Bible mentions a person's name, think about all the millions of people in the Bible, only a few relatively have their name mentioned. It does it for good reason. And here we have two women who were held up as a model, as an example Okay, Shafira and Pua, and I'm waiting for somebody to name their twins after these ladies, right? Okay, two midwives, and it notes them for a particular reason, and I believe it's because of their prowess. Now, what do we mean by prowess? Webster here, exceptional valor and bravery, to be courageous. Now, what exactly did the midwives do? Now, now, if you thought we were kind of tiptoeing around things, we're going right there, okay? Here's what they did. They disobeyed the authorities, and then they lied about it, okay? That's what they did. Now, you read the commentaries, and there's all sorts of, you know, theologians have a debate about this lying thing. Oh, the midwife shouldn't have lied. Oh, goodness, they didn't trust God. They should have told Pharaoh the truth of what they were doing. Here, here's the problem with that, Right? The problem is that it very clearly tells us in the text that the midwives did what they did and said what they did because they, quote, feared God. And it explicitly tells us that because of what they did and what they said, that God dealt well with them, that God gave them favor, God gave them their own families. Interestingly, he honored their bravery by blessing them at the very point of their obedience, 
And so it's interesting, John Gerstner, who's with the Lord now, he was the mentor of R.C. Sproul. And in a, in a series, teaching series on the Ten Commandments, he was talking about this idea of bearing false witness against your neighbor. And I think he was using, or, or maybe in reference to, I can't remember, the, the, the situation in Joshua with Rahab and the spies. Remember, Rahab hid the spies from Israel. Then she lied to her authorities about it, and they escaped. And again, the commentators go crazy. She shouldn't have lied. She should have told the truth and all those sorts of things. This is what Gerstner says about this. He said, we absolutely have a duty to bear, to not bear false witness to our neighbor, to not bear false witness to those who are around us and those we love, those who are part of our community, he said, but to our enemies, we owe it to them to lie. We owe it to them to deceive. We owe it to them to trick. And if that offends you, just think for a second, you're 1939 in the Netherlands, Amsterdam, and you're hiding a Jewish family and the Nazis come and knock on your door and say, are you hiding any Jews here? What is your moral obligation at that point? To lie, 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 right? You better. It's part of your duty to love your neighbor. See, this is what the midwives did. You know, it's interesting. Pharaoh dealt shrewdly with the Israelites. Well, guess what? The midwives dealt shrewdly with Pharaoh. They disobeyed their leader. They disobeyed their authority. They disobeyed the person that God tells us right over and over in the New Testament to pray for, to honor, to lift up. And let's be honest, civil disobedience is a big issue today. It's a big issue as it relates to masks, to elections, to injustice, to protest. And in this text, it's, it's very clear there are places where Israel obeys. They keep on working. They keep on slaving. They keep on going to the, the mortar pit each and every day. There's some places they obey, but there's some places where they disobey. And we want to ask, how do we make sense of this? And how does this relate to the current cultural context in which we live? Guys, in this day and age, and I'll, I'll, you, you may have said this yourself, I've probably said it a hundred times over this past year. Think about the number of times people have appealed to their conscience. So in other words, Pastor Paul, I, I can't do such and such. It just, it violates my conscience. Pastor Paul, I, I would do this, but it just, it just, it just violates my, my convictions. You know, the person who probably wrote and thought the most about the conscience was whom? Was Martin Luther. And it was Luther who famously said, the Lord is the Lord of the conscience, and it's not wise to go against conscience. But in, let's, let's think for a second what Luther said this in regards to. Luther had poured his heart out in his books and his writings and his sermons to proclaim justification by faith. That, that we are not justified by obeying the law. We are justified by God's free grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And as he was at the Diet of Worms and he was before the emperor, they said, Luther, Martin Luther, will you denounce your writings? And this is when he famously said, to go against God or conscience is never wise. In other words, he was taking his stand in his conscience upon the clear teaching and truths of Scripture, 
about salvation, about Jesus, about the the church. Sometimes, I'm not saying this is all the time, but sometimes we evoke this idea of conscience and just apply it to anything, let's be honest, that we just don't want to do. Right? Uh, Pastor, I don't like the way the government spends my money. Some of it I know goes to immoral, wasteful things. I'm not going to pay my taxes. What's the problem with that? Despite, I mean, other than your imminent arrest, what, what, what's the problem with that? Well, Peter and Paul say, oh, so clearly, pay your taxes. And, and, and of all people who served in a corrupt regime, can you imagine what the Roman Empire dollars were going to fund? They said, no, 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 that's part of your witness. You, you, you obey the civil authorities, you pay your taxes. See, it's easy to hide behind conscience when what we really mean is preference. There are certain things in this season, Four Oaks, we want to put our stake in the ground and say, here and no further. But we have to be really clear that our conscience at those points is being bound by the Word of God, that they are biblically informed. See, I think it's very clear. The reason the civil disobedience, if we want to call it that, of these midwives is highlighted here is that they were being obedient along the lines of the clearest teachings of God's Word to the people of Israel as we find them in Genesis 1 and 2. And what does Genesis 1 and 2 says, tell us? Every person's made in the image of God. No one is expendable. There, 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 there's, human beings exist beyond simply their utilitarian means. And, and, and not only that, that they are made to be in relationship to one another as a man and a woman. And that there is to be a sexuality that's to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage and family. And so on those sorts of things, the people of Israel were prepared to ride hard. And we as a church family need to be prepared and will be prepared to ride hard. If the government was to forbid us from teaching the Bible or from gathering at all, guys, just I would be the first person to volunteer myself for the gulag. I'd be the first person However, I'll be honest with you, there's certain things I'm not going to the gulag for. Can I tell you some of them? Okay. I'm not going to the gulag over masks or social distancing or guns or seatbelts or recreational drugs. I just threw that one in for fun. Okay. Or vaccines. Okay. You you get what I'm saying, right? And the reason I'm not going to go to the gulag over those is not because I don't want to go to the gulag, which I don't. It's because God has told me that's not what I'm supposed to go to the gulag over. If I'm going to go to the gulag over, it's going to be on the clear teachings of the Word of God. It is going to be based upon a conscience that's bound by, the, by God's Word. Now, I understand we are at times going to disagree about those things, what those things are exactly. That's to be expected. There's going to be gray. There's going to be ambivalence. We're going to disagree where things are unclear. But you know what God calls us to do? Not to shake our fists at one another, but He calls us to be humble to give grace, to submit to one another. Guys, do you know in this season when we are so set on staking our claim about what our rights are, do you realize that it's allowed to actually give up your rights? Do you know that you can do that? That, that, that? That's permissible. Paul did it all the time. Can you imagine Paul? I mean, like wherever Paul, Paul had a clear conscience, right? He, 
Meat sacrifice to idols, wine. You know, he was that guy, right? And then he goes into these contexts with these Jewish Christians who have an immature conscience and it burdens their conscience. And Paul's like, okay, I'm going to give up my, give up my right here. Guys, do you understand that when we do that in relationship to the body of Christ, that's called living out the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. Can you imagine if if Jesus embodied the spirit of this age? He would have said, equality with God, I'm not giving that up. Equality with God, I'm just, I'm I'm going to keep that firmly in my grasp, these sinners these immature believers, these people are lost. Is that the gospel? No. What does Paul tell us? Tell us, Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto. He became, believe it or not, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Guys, it is a powerful, powerful thing when the people of God make their stand on the word of God and simply entrust the rest to him. And we pray for grace and we pray for humility as we work through those things as a church family, what those things are, what they are. They're not always as clear as we would like, but the disposition that we have towards one another as believers is to demonstrate is to hold up the gospel of grace to a watching world. Let's be brave about that. Let's pray.